when I was in seminary, one of the assignments that we had to do in our introductory course on preaching was that we had to write about who was our favorite preacher. Now, I must be honest that at that time, I thought that that was somewhat of a silly topic. Because, I mean, who do you really get to listen to when you're young? And for many, the choice of who is your favorite preacher is most of the time going to be limited to those preachers who preached in the few churches that they may have attended as they were growing up. And if they grew up in the same church their whole young life, well then they would be even more limited. Who is your favorite preacher? Now of course, simply naming the preacher would have been far too easy of an assignment. So they had to ask that most famous of expansion questions. Why? Why do you say your favorite preacher is your favorite preacher? Why? Explain. Expand. Elaborate. Now that's of course where it got a little bit trickier, isn't it? You see, there is no right or wrong answer. There was no right or wrong answer for us yet. As a first year seminary student. As the truth is that we didn't really have the skills or the tools to be able to determine who's a good preacher and who's not. I mean, if you've only listened to three or four preachers your entire life growing up, it's much easier to identify who you don't like. Everyone else, well then, at that point in time, is your favorite preacher, especially if you're still listening to them. Now, what that assignment did, and us thinking through and naming who's your favorite preacher and why, it highlighted to us, to us first-year wannabe preachers, what we didn't know rather than what we did. And so it was a humbling experience. As I've gotten older, I've had the privilege of listening to many more preachers. And I'm able to better identify who I like and who I don't like. And without hesitation, I can tell you that my most favorite preacher is the late Dr. Haddon Robinson, distinguished professor of preaching at Gordon-Connell Seminary. Man, he could preach. Not a fiery, pulpit-slapping type preacher at all. But one of those that when he speaks, when he preaches, he just has this way of making the Bible interesting and worthwhile wanting to know more about. I remember listening to him the first time and every time since then, thinking how I wish I could preach like that. It's like listening to Spurgeon. None of us would have ever have had that privilege to hear Spurgeon speak, not even on a recording. We wouldn't have been able to hear Spurgeon. But when I listen to Haddon and I read Spurgeon, Haddon sounds like Spurgeon preaches. I was privileged to preach at Intonzini Baptist Church recently and took an opportunity during the, the two-hour drive to listen to two of Haddon's messages. They were both on 1 Corinthians 13. He's actually, in fact, got three messages on 1 Corinthians 13. I listened to two of them as I was driving, and they were both different. The core of the message was both the same. Love others. But the content was fundamentally different. I was struck, though, by one of the things that he said in one of the messages. 
He was expanding on loving others and how, how that interrelated with Jesus saying in Matthew 25 that whatever you do or did for, for the least in the kingdom, we were in fact doing it for him, doing it for Jesus. Haddon was saying during this message that he had always imagined what it would be like to one day get to heaven. And God bless his soul, he's, he's of course there at the moment and right now. But he always imagined what it would be like to get to heaven and be one of those facing the judgment seat of Christ as one of his sheep. He said that he always imagined that it might be a thing of like Jesus pulling out the book of your life. You know, all the days of your life are written in the book. He pulls out the book of your life and he has you go through it. He has you go through particular days. And, he, and Jesus asks and he says, open up to this or this day. And when you look at that day and you take note of what happened in that day, what you accomplished, and maybe on that particular day you take note that you accomplished something that you thought was particularly great. But then Jesus would say, yeah, I saw that. It was good. It was good. It was great. But, but do you see that entry over there? Do you see that entry down there at the bottom? About how you helped that other person with a gift of some sort. And you look at the entry and you look at the name and you, you must be honest in your heart. You can't remember. But you say, well, I'm, yeah, I'm sure it must be. I must have done it, Lord, because here it is in the book of my life. It's written down. Yes, I must have done it. But to be honest, I don't remember. And Jesus will say, you know what? I've never forgotten about that. That was important to me. And then Jesus would say to you, open up to another date, and Haddon would open it up and smile proudly to himself as he says to Jesus, oh yeah, that's the day I handed in my paper on the relationship between hermeneutics and homiletics. And Jesus would say, hey, yeah, that's right, hey. That was a great paper. You know what, I really didn't get the title, so I just put it one side. But, but have a look at that entry over there. How you spent an hour speaking to that student about one other thing that was happening in their life. Their pain was my pain too that day. And you know what? I've, I've never forgotten about that, Haddon. It was a brilliant sermon. And I again found myself wishing that I could somehow come to the place of preaching like that. But what made me inwardly smile when I was listening to that message was Haddon's rendition of Jesus' response to that very important paper that he had written on the relationship between hermeneutics and homiletics. Jesus said, yeah, I saw that. But you know what, I didn't really get the title, so I, you know, I just put it down there for a while. Thought I'd read it later. I smiled because I understood somewhat of what Haddon and Jesus were saying. You see, hermeneutics is the technical term for the study of the interpretation of Scripture. Whereas homiletics is the technical term for the art of preaching. Now, I haven't read the paper. But if I had to give an educated guess, I would say that what Haddon was trying to get at in that paper is that there is this essential need to tie the two fields of study together. To tie together what the timeless truth and meaning of the biblical text is with what is necessary for the people being preached to. What is necessary for them to hear 
as I said, I haven't read the paper, so don't quote me as to the intent or the thesis or the conclusion of the paper. But I got the title. And I understood Haddon's imagined response by Jesus. Understood his response of putting it aside because he didn't understand the title. I understood what Haddon was getting at. That sometimes we can get so very clever with our words. When in the final analysis, God is after our heart. After our heart. And so I smiled and I appreciated the inside joke for want of a better term. Little realizing how that little phrase would give birth to the message today. You see, I've been reading further along in Acts, asking God, what would you have me preach on? We've been going through the book of Acts over the last couple of weeks, and so I carried on uh, reading. And as I read further along in Acts chapter 11, verses 1 to 18, it's essentially a summary of all that happened in Acts chapter 10. The whole of those 48 verses, summarized in 18 verses in another chapter. So I looked at the text and I considered what's after it. Acts chapter, 19, sorry, Acts chapter 11 verse 19 onwards, which is the church of Antioch. I looked at that. I looked at Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 11, and, and then the church of Antioch thing, and, I, and they were so very different. And I thought, God, what's next? Why is Acts chapter 11 verse 1 to 18 here? We've just spent 48 verses in it, in, in Acts chapter 10. Why are you repeating it? Is there something that we need to know more than just the same of what happened in Acts chapter 10. I ask God that. Why did you allow this summary to be recorded? And so in considering Haddon's relationship between hermeneutics and homiletics, I have entitled today's message, The Intellectual and Emotional Tension of Preaching. The Intellectual and Emotional Tension of Preaching. Now I want to make it crystal clear right up front. Right up front. Today's text does not exegetically highlight this. In other words, it is not the author's intent of this passage of Scripture to provide a direct teaching on the intellectual and emotional te uh, tension of preaching. You need to understand that up front. It is not the timeless doctrinal truth teaching of this passage of Scripture. However, it is a useful passage to bring this tension to light and to show you that there is more to gain from Scripture if you allow the Holy Spirit to speak to your heart. And so I say this carefully and cautiously because God will not contradict Himself. But I believe that today's text in part shows us that there is both a doctrinal as well as a devotional aspect to Scripture that makes Scripture come alive to us. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Acts chapter 11, where we will be reading from verse 1. Acts chapter 11, reading from verse 1. The apostles and the brothers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized them and said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. Peter began and explained everything to them precisely as it had happened. 
Verse 5, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision. I saw something like a large sheet being set down from, sent down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to where I was. I looked into it and saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, reptiles, and birds of the air. Then I heard a voice telling me, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. Verse 8, I replied, Surely not, Lord. Nothing impure or unclean has ever entered my mouth. The voice spoke from heaven a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and then it was all pulled up to heaven again. Right then, three men who had been sent to me from Caesarea stopped at the house where I was staying. The spirits told me to have no hesitation about going with them. These six brothers also went with me, and we entered the man's house. He told us how he had seen an angel appear in his house and say, Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He will bring you a message through which you and all your household will be saved. Verse 15, As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us at the beginning. Then I remembered what the Lord had said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift as he gave us, who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could oppose God? When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, So then, God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we gather here today in the name of your, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we do so, Father God, with a joyful expectation of being able to gather soon together. That your ecclesia, Father God, will be able to gather. Your fellowship of believers would be able to gather. But for now, Father God, as we gather together in spirit with each other, even over this, these digital channels, we pray, Father God, that you would be with us, that you would minister to us, that you would show us great and unsearchable things. And Father God, your word will not return to your void. We pray this for your glory's sake and in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so let's get the doctrinal aspect of this passage of Scripture out of the way. Let's get the intellectual part, the hermeneutical part out of the way. If you have been following along with our messages over the last few weeks, you would have concluded for yourself that these 18 verses of Acts chapter 11 are essentially a summary of Acts chapter 10. This means that the timeless doctrinal teaching of both Acts chapter 10 and then this portion of Acts chapter 11 is that God has allowed for all men to be saved. Not just Jews. All people, male and female. Verse 18 is the critical summary of these 18 verses. It says, so then, God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. Where Acts chapter 10 showed that even one of the greatest apostles, Peter, did not grasp this salvation for all people's mission of Jesus until the conversion event of Cornelius. Acts chapter 11 verses 1 to 18 shows us that the lack of understanding was prevalent amongst all the other Jewish believers too. Even the most learned of them. Even the most learned of them. For you see, Nicodemus may very well 
have been a part of that group who opposed Peter. Jesus calls Nicodemus Israel's teacher. It is very plausible, exceedingly plausible, that he was part of those group of believers who confronted Peter. So this misunderstanding of the mission of Jesus wasn't just an issue of the apostles, but of all the Jews, all the Christian believers. Now we know that repetition in the Bible is always important. I've said this so many times. Whenever something is repeated in the Bible, you need to take extra special note of that, especially when it's repeated very close to each other. God, in repeating this doctrine of salvation for all peoples, in Acts chapter 10 and again in Acts chapter 11, God is emphasizing that this doctrine is not just important, but very important. There is no race, there is no class of people who have been excluded from being able to be saved by Jesus' sacrifice. This is the timeless, exegetical, hermeneutical teaching of this passage of Scripture. And if you did not get to listen to the previous message on Acts chapter 10, please go and listen to it as I expand more on that in, in that message. So that's the intellectual aspect of this passage of Scripture. What about the emotional? As I said, there is so much more to gain from reading the Bible when we take the time to meditate on it. And I count it a privilege to be allowed to meditate more than others can. That is a privilege. Consider, consider for a moment what is happening. Okay, doctrinal teaching out the way. Consider what is happening. Okay, Peter has been praying to God. That was in Acts chapter 10. He was praying to God. In his prayers, during his time of prayer, he has a vision from God. And out of that vision, he has concluded that all peoples, all of humanity, all of humankind, now have the opportunity to be saved because of Jesus' sacrifice. Peter obeys the direct instruction of God to go and be in the presence of the Gentiles, which he ordinarily wouldn't have done. And upon sharing with them the gospel message, Peter witnesses God's acceptance of these Gentiles by way of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon them. Friends, consider what is happening here or what has happened. Peter prays to God. Peter has a vision from God. Peter hears God speak to him. Peter obeys God. Peter witnesses the, the, the result of his obedience, God's resultant work. Only to return to Jerusalem and be called to give an account for his actions. Explain himself to others. Friends, how do you think Peter must have felt? After doing all that he had done, being obedient to the Father, on his return to Jerusalem, full of joy at the work that God had accomplished, Peter is pulled aside and asked to explain himself. Criticized, the Bible says. Friends, I know that we can look into this account and very easily say that Peter simply answered them as he did in verse 4 where he said he began and explained everything. And by the end of his discourse, 
they were comfortable with his answer and praised God. We can easily say that's what the Bible said happened. But the Bible is not clear as to how Peter felt about being confronted in this way. And few people are able to relate to the inner turmoil that Peter must have been feeling unless they have gone through something similar themselves. For those who are not maybe as strong as Peter was, you would know that such an incident would cause much doubt and confusion in yourself. Even questioning whether you heard God right or not. You do something with the greatest of intentions because you truly believe that that is what God has led you to do only to find that you are confronted, maybe even criticized by the very people who you thought should be rejoicing with you. That is what's happening here. Read that text carefully again. From chapter 10 up to chapter 11, verse 18. This passage of Scripture today shows us that you are not alone if you have felt that way. You are not alone. The world. And even those whom you think should be rejoicing with you will not always be pleased with the work or the works that you do. Do it anyway. Do it anyway. If your conscience is clear before God, do the work that God has called you to do. Do it anyway. I've shown in the last few messages that persecution can be expected after becoming a follower of Jesus. And yet I've also shown that it is not the people persecuting you who are the enemy. We fight not against flesh and blood. We fight not against other people. We fight against the powers and principalities of the air. We fight against the spiritual forces of this dark world. The fight was not against Peter's fellow brothers and sisters in Christ who were criticizing him. But rather with the spiritual force, the demonic force seeking to create offense and ultimately disunity. Friends, be careful of the battle that takes place in your mind. For this is where the war is waged. The other believers had somewhat of a right as well as a responsibility to ask Peter for an explanation. Yes, their asking may have been rooted in their lack of understanding, but it did not take away their position of doing what they felt was right too. Their conscience before God was clear. Their conscience was clear too. Therefore I say again, the fight is not against flesh and blood. Both parties, both Peter and the other circumcised believers were doing what was right to them. Both of these sets of actions were legitimate. Therefore be careful of the war that wages in your mind. As the goal of the accuser of the brethren, the goal of the devil, the goal of Satan, is to cause disunity between fellow believers. Because he knows that when he gets that right, he disarms, he disables, and he distracts us from accomplishing the work to which we are all collectively called as disciples of Jesus 
to go and make disciples. Friends, that is our united goal. How does this relate to your life outside of the church? How does this relate to life in the real world, you might ask? Friends, first be praying in all circumstances and in all occasions, Ephesians tells us. Then you need to be hearing when you feel God gives you an answer. Then you need to be doing as you obey God speaking into your life and your situation and your circumstances. And then you need to be ready to confidently give an account if asked to explain yourself. It is my firm belief that God is everywhere all the time. This should be your firm belief too. And if he is everywhere all the time, then there is no part of your life that he cannot give you guidance on. Therefore, you can expect him to guide you along paths of righteousness for his name's sake, as the psalmist writes. Even in your day-to-day living, especially in your day-to-day living. That's why we did that series, The Eight Keys to Hearing God. God wants to be a part of your life. Every aspect of it. Raising your children, doing your work, being obedient to the authorities. God wants you to be a part of of every aspect of your life. Pray, seek, hear, do. As long as your conscience is clear before God, do it anyway. But be ready to give an account for others around you have a right and responsibility to hold you to account for your actions. The Bible says, if you, even you who are wicked, wicked as in the sense of not being good like God is, if you being wicked are able to give good gifts to your children when they ask, the Bible says how much more Will your Father in heaven give you good gifts when you ask? These might not look like you want them to look, but they will be good because God has given it, friends. God has given it. There is an intellectual and emotional tension when it comes to preaching a text from Scripture. Today, you have received both. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we have come now to the end of this message, consider the repetition of the conversion or the doctrine of salvation for all people. We pray, Father God, that we would remember that always, that there is none, Father God, who is not invited. There are none, Father God, who are not potential brothers and sisters in Christ. Father God, when we hear anyone say something different, we pray, Lord, that we would be able to stand up righteously and call that person to account and ask them to give an explanation for their actions. For we have heard it now, two weeks in a row, Christ has died for all people, that all can be saved. Call in the name of the Lord and be saved. Out of this text, Father God, we also see into the life of Peter. Into what he potentially experienced, Father God. He might have been a strong person who never, maybe never felt that, Lord. 
But there is a possibility that there are other people who would have faced a similar thing who would have been flawed. The Bible doesn't record what happened and how it happened and how he felt about it. But we see, Father God, that there comes a time where we have to take a stand for what we believe is right. I pray, Father God, that today as we have received this word, both intellectual and emotional aspects, I pray, Father God, that your word would not return to your void, that people will be able to go out, have compassion upon others, and spread the good news of Jesus Christ. For your glory's sake, and in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you're watching this on YouTube, then there's going to be a closing song in the playlist. And, but before you go, I want to pray the benediction, a passage of scripture over you. Let us pray. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. See you guys next week.